Hello and welcome to Inching Closer, a podcast where we explore different angles of approach to sustainability. I'm one of your hosts, Anirudh, and I'm Anant. If you're Indian, you take food seriously by default. We take pride in all our many masalas and flavors and cuisines, all the way from the exquisite biryani to the questionable Chinese chaat. Unfortunately, this obsession with food does not extend to its production and sourcing. Today's guest is Kapil Mandavewala, a finance consultant turned farmer who is dedicated to helping people eat better food. Here's how he does it. I run this company called Edible Roots hmm. where we help people grow food in urban spaces and also help them connect with the food that they are eating on a day-to-day basis. When I say connect it basically means knowing about our food, you know hmm. who is growing it, where was it grown, how hmm. was it grown, how did it get to them? Basically is it good for them and their family or not? Okay. So um the idea is to to bring back the the relationship between humans and food okay. because the modern food system has broken that down uh, over the last 60 70 years okay so the simple act of growing in your balcony or rooftop is the first step to to building that connection back to there are very fundamental questions about our food we don't know like children don't know whether something grows on a vine or is it growing under the ground or which season it grows in because we are we have things available throughout the year now so i think it's it's basically just creating awareness and also giving the full support in terms of helping people get started helping people continue through their journey of bringing the relationship with food for themselves and their family again so what is edible roots involved in today and did it always start with this intention or has it grown over time we started out as simply doing workshops okay uh, to grow food in urban space it could be a few boxes in your balcony or a few kiaris on your rooftop or a backyard through the workshop people asked us to help them set up their garden and then maybe handhold for some time until they are self sustained so that's how we started out we still continue to do that that's still the main sort of stay of our our work but we also learned a few things along the way and we evolved so one of the things was how uh, how the rooftop gardens or balcony gardens can't be sufficient in terms of all the needs of a family hmm. um at the same time i had observed over time that there are a lot of spaces in some cities especially in delhi where a lot of land within and around the city is lying vacant which could potentially be used to grow food in a very in a very close proximity to where people live so we created this system called farmlets Okay. farmlets are mini farms within a city so we have three farms right now in delhi and cr hmm. and uh, these are small mini farms of 1200 square feet where a okay. family subscribes and some people have a rooftop garden and a farmlet hmm. or they just choose to have a farmlet which uh, allows them to grow a bulk of their fresh food requirements it's a actual running farm i just rent a portion of portion it. of it and then you come and engage oh. yourself as much as you like okay but even if you're not there on a, on the back end we are taking care of it on a day to day basis that's and, very and then, interesting and then you also oh. get the vegetables delivered to you from there 
is farmlet something very unique to this sector or is this a model that has always been present uh, in india uh, there's only one other company which started doing it I, i'm not sure if they're still doing it but hmm. there's a company based in bangalore that is doing it okay uh, in in delhi ncr also a few outfits i think tried it but i don't think they're doing exactly in the same form they have sure. they have uh, moved to more what we call as a veggie basket Okay. Where where a fixed amount of vegetables are delivered to to a family on a weekly basis, not oh. necessarily being engaged in the growing process. Yeah. Uh, but this is a very common concept in the West. If you go okay. to if you go to countries like Cuba or to Russia or most countries in Europe, they have this what is called as the allotment system. Okay. So the government provides pieces of small pieces of land on a very little or no cost, and. Uh, the families are supposed to grow food for themselves if they don't utilize it for themselves then the government takes it back and gives it to another family hmm. uh since in india we don't have such a government supported system that's why this is a more privately organized system where lands are either leased or partnered with who own them and then on that we create this this farmlets which are then subscribed by various urban families edible roots today has grown into a large organization with a number of offerings for its customers however it has a very personal origin story so i grew up in gujarat um i i used to be slightly on the heavier side as a as a child and i was always made to be conscious about what i am eating or how much i am eating uh, by my parents hmm. and then as i grew up and i went to college and all uh and i realized that i gained even more weight at that point in my in my in my life so it made me aware of a few things and i i you know it was sort of told to me that it's hereditary the family it runs in the family that you are heavier but somehow it didn't ring with me so point being that health was always somewhere in my mind because it it sort of affected my self esteem it affected me who i was and 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 then eventually somewhere i i had this this is a realization i had when i thought of coming back to india from the us and starting the farming uh, work that i was doing is because i realized that my sort of passion or my uh, inclination lies where food and health meet okay uh, uh, and and how the two are interconnected so so through that and discussing talking to a few mentors and friends i realized that farming is where food and health is at the nexus farming is broken at this point in terms of use of chemicals the land degradation etc which eventually affects our own health as well hmm. and and luckily my family had some land in gujarat so so i came back and i just started practicing on it and hmm. sort of that's where this journey started evolving from however farming wasn't something couple thought he'd do for a living after he finished college uh no farming was nowhere in my in my mindset or never i never thought as a child that I ever engage in farming or that's something that appeals to me uh, i remember as a child we used to go to our farm where i eventually learned through with my parents and all but it used to just be a, like a picnic or something it, mm. it wasn't something that i envisioned i'll be doing as a bread and butter my my educational background is in finance and information systems that's why i studied in the us and then i was working with deloitte in risk consulting and uh, but at some point i realized about after 4 or 5 years of working there that this is not something i can do for the rest of my life and that's when i started real sort of pondering and introspecting what is it that i want to do 
I sort of look back into my life, you know, what are the areas of my life which which drive me, which which I enjoy doing, where I lose the sense of time. And that's where food, health, sort of what was narrowed down. And then farming was just a thought at that point in time. Hmm. But, I, but I had to take a leap of faith because I had completely burnt out with my corporate work. And I was completely at this point where I, I, I had to find an alternate path. I moved back to India, lived with my parents for some time and uh, started practicing farming on this family land. Was that the first version of Edible Roots or was this version in Gujarat a different outfit? So at that at that point, I had no concept of urban farming. I didn't even know that there was something called urban farming. So it was just about growing food and 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 getting good food, good organic food. So I came back to grow organically. That was for sure on my mind. Okay. That I'll grow organically without any chemicals because that's the the foundation of what was wrong with our food system. So the idea was to grow organic food and then supply it to the to the consumers or to the market. And at that point, I called this organization that I had made, Sajeev Fresh. We used the same name until I came to Delhi. Uh, but then after a year or so, we realized that the name didn't connect exactly anymore with what we were doing. And that's when, as a team, we were about a handful of people at that time, and we brainstormed, and this is the name we came up with, Edible Roots. Okay. So we registered officially in 2016. What was your biggest takeaway from this entire experience of working in, in Gujarat? Uh, quite a few takeaways. Uh, one of the first uh, ex- experiences I remember is... Uh, is I had grown tomatoes on about five acres of land. And uh, after about three, four months, we got a good harvest and we went to the mandi to sell them. Hmm. And uh, I remember at that time, we got about two rupees a kilo for those tomatoes. So what what I it was a big shock for me because first of all, that two rupees didn't even cover our cost to carry the tomatoes from the farm hmm. to the market, let alone the entire cost of growing it, the effort and no profits, etc. So, so, so I went through a lot of these, uh, so to say, learning curves uh, during this farming process. Uh, the others, of course, being the typical things like pest attacks and plants dying. Essentially, for the first few years, the farm was losing money. What what happened uh, as a coincidence after about a, two years into it, uh, we were growing papayas at that time. And uh, I used to obviously carry papayas for our family back mm. home. And we're an extended family. We're about 30 people who live there. Hmm. So so some of the family friends must have tasted the, the papayas from our farm. And they said that we want this papayas. Is there a way we can get it directly? Because obviously once it's in the market, we can't hmm. distinguish between one or the other. So I said, and they lived close by. I said, sure, I, I visit the farm practically every day. So I'll bring it once or twice a week for you. And uh, you can just pay us whatever the market price is. Hmm. So, so because of that, a, a, a couple of things happened. One, that when we when we sell to the mandi, we typically get a quarter hmm. or a fifth of what we pay as a consumer. Hmm. So, so if I'm buying tomatoes at twenty rupees a kilo, I'm probably getting three, four rupees a kilo at the mandi. Hmm. So, so this allowed me to triple, quadruple my revenues hmm. because now I'm giving it directly to the consumer. Of course, the volumes are much smaller. The size, the ticket size is much smaller, but but the revenue is almost 4x on the same amount of unit. This is compared to any other farmer anywhere in India doing the same thing, same right? Same thing, correct, like, correct. At a Monday, I'm guessing there's no difference between 
how it was grown organic correct, correct. That, that's think. a very good point you brought yeah. up that there was no so the 2 rupees a kilo didn't really value whether it was organic or not okay in fact in fact we got a lower value because our size was a bit smaller because mm. we didn't use any chemicals mm. so so we actually got a lower price than probably what was chemically grown mm. so so anyway so so this farm to fork thing started developing what also happens as part of farming growing process is that almost about a third of the produce is always blemished what we hmm. call as b b category has a scar or has a mark on it or the shape is uneven hmm. which we typically don't see in the market hmm. but they're perfectly edible hmm. there's nothing wrong with it it's not spoiled fruit it's hmm. just not looking right hmm. so so this usually also used to go to waste because n- nobody pays any price for this in the mandi hmm. So then we luckily our farm was on a on a on a road on a highway mm. so there was a lot of traffic that moves around so we opened a little cabin at the gate and oh, and we started okay. keeping all this produce over there at half the price okay uh, and it it just flew huh. because the, the villagers didn't dis- they weren't as spoiled as the urban citizens mm. where uh, they would look down upon something like this which doesn't doesn't look right mm. so so they were happy buying it for half the price and and for us it was a dead revenue anyway so mm. we were happy doing that so when these two shifts happened one selling directly from the farm to the folk to mm. the consumer and second being able to sell our one third of the the waste produce so to say mm. to to people who who valued it mm. so this this uh, sort of started turning the farm into a profitable venture and it took about 2 3 years to get there but but during this journey a lot of money was lost hmm. and uh, and i think that that's uh, sort of inherent you know in in terms of because farming was not in our family or in my blood in, in, in the land was there but they haven't been farming for hmm. for generations now hmm. so that that is something that had to be learned eventually kapil shifted his focus to delhi which is where he resides and works today we wanted to know how this shift from gujarat to delhi happened So while the farm became self-sustained it it wasn't still earning enough to to support my livelihood so so there there was a need for me to grow i had hmm. so so what i had started doing was leasing a few farms around around our farm in gujarat and also in a few neighboring cities where i could lease of land and grow more but it was it was a lot of hard work and especially farming is something that you have to manage hands on it's not something you can do too much remote control so so while it, this was going on it just happened coincidentally that a friend i met he suggested to me that why don't you come and do a, a session in delhi at my at my cousin's house to to grow food on on an urban space like a rooftop or a balcony so abhi tak you haven't ventured into this right abhi no. tak you are doing it on farm on farm gujarat yeah. i had i had experimented with this idea within my city because some of my family members like my aunt and some close family friends mm. they said oh can you help us grow a herb in my balcony or a, a hmm. chili plant in my backyard so that was the on, to only the extent and i had i had tried that and failed also so that got me curious you know because the same seed the same plants i was already growing at the farm successfully why did it hmm. not grow successfully in my aunt's front yard hmm. so so what i realized is that the urban context is slightly different okay. because we have a house because we sometimes have trees around the sunlight can be blocked the water quality can be different so the soil the, the soil quality can be different yeah. Yeah. so there are factors that affect growing in an urban condition and uh, and then within delhi also I mean the, when we first started the first 2 3 years because the delhi summer is an extreme i had never faced something hmm. like that hmm. i remember the first summer we had planted something on a rooftop of a client and uh, everything just turned brown you know in the hmm. in the month of may and june hmm. now over the years we have figured out how to 
how to manage the extreme extremes of the weather conditions as well mm-hmm. uh, but but it was it's it's been a learning process mm. while kapil began with and still practices organic farming farming as an area of work is neither easy nor lucrative in india it it, it can't be huh. see the one of the, the the distinctions i i realized was that if you go if you take any commodity hmm. a pen a laptop a car hmm. it's always the seller hmm. who decides the price of that commodity hmm. but farming is the only place where the farmer is at the mercy of the buyer to get a price for his produce. Okay. So he goes to the mandi and he doesn't tell I'll sell this for 10 rupees a kilo or 20 rupees a kilo. Hmm. The buyer the the aratias or the wholesalers or the brokers hmm. they tell today's price is 2 rupees a kilo. And that's why it can never be profitable for the person who is growing it. Hmm. So so that's why this direct farm to fork is essential because there now you can control the price. I told the direct buyer the home consumer That okay. today today's price is 40 rupees a kilo for my papaya so 20 rupees a kilo for the hmm. tomatoes hmm. so so that's when it becomes profitable God, so yeah. so hmm. with today's modern technology in terms of apps and you know social media and all that it's it's possible that possibly each farmer individually or a farm a few farmers as a cooperative can come together and i've heard countless of stories in the last few years hmm. where they've come together and there's now build and build a sort of a consortium and approach directly with the societies mm. or various individuals mm. through an app through a through a logistical delivery system where mm. they can directly reach the the consumer and this is the only way the farming can become profitable mm. for the grower in such a situation one would think that the government is actively subsidizing organic farming so that everyone can eat healthier food unfortunately this isn't so and anyone who has been to a supermarket and has compared the price of regular veggies to organic ones knows exactly what this looks like for the consumer that that, that is the sort of the irony of things that still all the subsidies are for the chemical business so while we hear a lot in the media that you know the, there there is a lot of policy support for growing organically and naturally and without chemicals but in practice i think there's still almost crores lakhs of crores of rupees that go to hmm. subsidies towards chemical fertilizers i don't have the exact numbers hmm. but but and but there's in fact there's practically no subsidy towards organic growing hmm. in fact the organic inputs are even costlier than than chemical inputs so so that's why a lot of farmers are not, not adopting it and that's why the organic food is still so costlier hmm. because this was another thing on my mind when i was doing the farming venture in gujarat hmm. that i didn't want to necessarily charge a lot of premium on the organic produce i hmm. wanted it to be something that people would would naturally choose hmm. so if i was selling the same papayas and tomatoes at the same price as the as the corresponding uh, commercial or the, the chemically grown one then it's a it's a no brainer for them that if hmm. they, if this tastes better and if it's healthier for me and my family and the same price hmm. why would i choose something else hmm. so is it is it a myth then that organic farming costs more to do than regular farming it's it's not a myth but w- what we take f- as an assumption is that we will sell through the same medium as the traditional produce okay. which is which is through the mandi okay. if if that's what you keep doing then you can't make money because it it's obvious that the output does dip in the short term the cost of production is definitely higher 
inorganic per unit yes because your output has reduced okay okay, okay. on an absolute value it's not higher hmm. but but per unit value it gets higher because your output is not as much as the chemical chemical farming okay uh, and and that's why your cost per unit is higher but this is also in the short term until the so- because the soils have been depleted and extracted hmm. they they take time to build its natural fertility hmm. once once one once the soil is naturally fully fertile the output will be comparable or even higher to chemically grown produce but okay. but it's just that we have depleted it so much over over the last few decades that it takes time to build it back up and and and, and that's the survival time that's that's when you to survive hmm. to so that you can get back the yields that that normally would be there and then you can have some good profits out of it like you said that that audience which is discredited from food i am that audience i have never I barely know where my food is coming from. In this context, where everything is either termed organic or unsustainable, what is actually the differentiator between organic farming and a regular farm? I don't think it's new. The, the term organic might be new, but but the the process of growing organically has been the the way farming has been for centuries in India and possibly around other parts of the world as well. the the change the change essentially happened in in some sense very recently about 70 80 years ago when the world war 2 ended that's when the green revolution came about the idea was to somehow utilize all the industries that had been set up to build ammunition for the world war had nothing to do now and uh, it just happened that uh, the the raw materials or the ingredients required to create ammunition are the same ones required to create the chemical fertilizers so some scientist must have come up with this idea that you know we can use these factories to to grow urea and to make urea and dap and all of that mm. which can then further increase the yields of our farms without knowing the long term impacts of it at that point in time so that that sort of when shifted shift happened and uh, and obviously all of these industries have huge lobbies and and that's where the government subsidies came into play it is it's sort of like a steroid you know like mm. uh, a person has a normal strength but but when they take a steroid or a drug they can for a for a short burst of time they can have excessive burst of energy Th- these chemical fertilizers are very much like that they 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 are used to give this burst of nitrogen and energy to the soil which gives a plant a higher output but in 50 60 years it wears off mm. and then even with extra amount of fertilizer or more and more fertilizer your yields are on a tapering curve you're you're, you're reducing over time mm. but in an organic farming in a natural naturally like if you see a forest ecosystem the forest is getting more and more richer every year the soil is getting richer and richer every year and the output is also getting more and more every year so so the nature has an has a cycle of abundance has a cycle of surplus and it creates surplus every year more and more hmm. but this extraction mindset that came about when this green revolution came about that's where the soils went down So is use of chemicals the only barrier between organic or non-organic today? No. So so that that is the that, that is the primary criteria. Hmm. But uh, but I I feel that the word organic has also been very loosely used. Hmm. To to me if I grow something organically which is without the use of chemicals in India but then I'm exporting it to Australia or to Europe to me that's not organic anymore because the carbon footprint of that food is huge because hmm. this this is mostly flown through uh through jet fuel mm. so so the amount of carbon footprint is excessive mm. so so what do we truly mean so to me it's not organic but if you if you go by the the standard certification systems of organic it will be considered organic mm. so i think 
you know, we follow a science called permaculture. It's a design hmm. science in terms of how we design our gardens and design the farms that we work on. So permaculture has three ethics, you know, which is the foundation of anything that we do is people care, earth care and fair share. So, okay. so, so while growing organically and sending it to Australia or Europe might be a good idea because now the people over there can eat mangoes as well, which probably doesn't grow there. But at the same time, it doesn't care for the earth hmm. because the, the carbon footprint is excessive. Plus, it possibly has some negative impacts on the other species that exist on this planet. And and finally, fair share, because the produce grown locally here, if there are people who are not able to eat within your own country, but you're feeding some other part of the world, then there's not a fair share happening as well in terms of the distribution of what's being grown. Is there something that consumers can look for while buying organic produce? Or is it just that the commercial version of organic farming, the, the kinds that we get in our supermarkets, is that is that just a gimmick? What I do as a personally in my life, uh, I don't necessarily buy always organic produce. Hmm. What what I am more focused on is trying to find who is growing it. So 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 because of my work, I travel hmm. and I meet farmers here and there. And wherever I go to a lot of these farmers markets, so to say, and true farmers markets, not the hmm. ones, this modern version that we have now, in mm. Delhi, but 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 two true genuine farmers markets where the farmer is trying to sell the produce or where I'm visiting a farm, I always buy produce from there, mm. uh, and and it's always cheaper. The farmers because like I said, the farmers' cost is much lower. So if you buy directly from the farmer, the cost will always, it, it's these middle companies that have come into play. Even in organic, this certification I'm guessing is a added it, layer now. Correct, and that adds to the cost. Why do we need the certification? If you know the farmer, mm. if I know what he is doing on his land. Why do I need a, somebody to somebody else to come and tell me whether this is right or not? Hmm. I can, and, and none of our farms are certified. None of the produce we sell is certified. It's all based on trust. It's all based on the transparency of knowing where it's coming from and who's... That, that really... Hmm. In India, how much is the certification valued anyways? I went to Uttarakhand. I found this farmer who grows rajma and who grows some rice. Hmm. Now I have his phone number. I just tell him. And nowadays, logistics is very simple. Hmm. People can just send it. It's still cheaper for me. Hmm. I mean, I get I get that rice and that rajma organically grown cheaper than I would get conventional produce in the market. So, yeah, it, so it's, it's just a matter of putting that yeah. effort in to really connect with where yeah. our food is coming. And that that's the whole idea of this urban farming is hmm. that at least because once you taste, once you the, the 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 hook comes that once you grow that one pot of spinach or one pot of tomato in your balcony and rooftop and you taste it, you get hooked. You realize that there's something different about it. Is organic farming scalable? All the examples that I've been reading on or what I've seen have always been tested at a small scale. This whole notion of scalability is something we need to we need to think deeper about. Okay. Organic farming is is designed to be more productive at a small scale. Okay. Uh, be- because as compared to chemical farming hmm. there's a difference in the thought process and the mindset altogether in chemical farming you're thinking of linear processes of one type of produce so that you can do one action in a mass manner however if you organic farming is derived from nature how nature works and if you if you closely observe nature nature works on various connections between different different species 
the plants when planted together they they do better there's there's com- what is called as companion planting mm. you put multiple plants together so that it's not 1 plus 1 equals to 2 it's 1 plus 1 equals to 11 so that that's what comes about when when nature starts ming- mingling things together of course in a more uh, conscious and uh, sort of knowledgeable way not just haphazardly but also what is inherent in nature is what is called as a closed loop system so what what is happening in chemical farming is that all the the output or or what they mm. call as waste output of an of a, of a harvest like when we get this wheat harvest mm. we'll hear now all of all this wheat farms getting the stubble burned, burning stubble burning yeah. so that that stubble is essentially an input to the soil to increase its fertility which we are burning away which is inherent in organic farming but at at that scale when we start scaling it when i have 100 acres of wheat mm. to to design it in a way where it can be built back to mm. go into the soil is difficult so so that's why the whole mindset of chemical farming and this whole scaling idea is different the other the other point is that food is meant to be local see that that's the that's the whole premise of of everything that we are doing as an organization as edible roots that our food needs to come closer to us the the, the average distance the food travels is 800 kilometers now in india okay so if if the if the food is going farther and farther away which means that more tampering has to be done with it there is more likelihood that i would not know where it was grown how it was grown or who was growing it and and more importantly for the person growing it there's a disconnect with the person going to be eating it so they are more free to put chemicals in it okay. if you were my neighbor yeah. and if i was growing something chemically and you would obviously be seeing what i'm doing on my farm okay. how okay. comfortable would i be coming and selling the produce to you hmm. so so because we have a, we have a veil in between us hmm. because of 800 kilometers we are apart hmm. Hmm. you i don't have to see you so i don't care who's going to eat it each farmer has a separate patch of land where they grow for their own family mm. this whole idea of scaling and transporting on larger larger distances is the root cause of the whole problem we are facing we have to think of local systems we have mm. to think about how can food grow within 50 kilometers of where i live see few things can travel grains pulses maybe mm. a coffee and your tea can mm. can travel but even that how much Hundred kilometers or thousand kilometers or ten thousand kilometers because food is flying across the globe now. Mm-hmm. If you go back to ancient India and when I say ancient India, let's say even hundred fifty years ago, the 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 land holding in India is all small land holding. Average farmer owns less than an acre, mm-hmm. and and if you collectively see the output that they generate from that, is much larger because the small farms can integrate things. The same farm where their vegetable waste is being just dumped. can become the food for the chickens the chickens can lay the eggs mm. the eggs can be eaten again the same waste from the garden can be used as fodder for the cows the cows can give us milk so so these things this, this interlinkages are only possible at a small scale compared to the rest of the world where do you see organic farming right now in india what is the benchmark how do you see it reaching that benchmark see i think in terms of knowledge of organic farming i think india always had it if you if you go to the the traditional ways of farming you know jisko hum we what we call as the, the cow based farming hmm. gai adharit kheti jisko hum bolte hain hmm. that that was essentially the foundation of organic farming the cow is the foundation of organic farming uh because the cow's manure carries all the microbes that makes the soil fertile so so that was the inherent and that's how farming has been done for centuries for millennia in india hmm. so so saying that that india doesn't know or didn't know how to farm even today i would say in terms of number absolute number of farmers organic farmers are probably higher in india as compared to any other country in the world because just because of the population and the sheer hmm. size of land hmm. that we have hmm. plus the india has the advantage of the climate 
the the weather that we have here the the the, the way we are placed on the globe we have the the most appropriate sunlight the most appropriate weather as compared to temperate countries which have which are under the snow for a few months in the year or they have various extreme mm. weather conditions where they can't grow mm. so we are very lucky in terms of where we are placed and that's why in some sense if we go back again in history of india we were that sone ki chidiya you know mm. and the sone ki chidiya was not built on some industry mm. it, was, it was built on our ability to grow food organically which was the norm and able to grow things which were which were world class what is your take on tech entering agriculture is it moving in the right direction or is it is it doing more harm i think as of now the large part of it is going in the wrong direction one one thing that we we hear a lot in terms of the agri domain now is this term called hydroponics hmm. uh while it's being greenwashed as organic or as pesticide free but but if we just think a bit with a bit more common sense hydroponics is essentially growing in water Hmm. that's what the word means and it that's what essentially it is you're not using soil to grow so all the nutrients that are fed to the plants have to go through the water which can't be in an organic form they have to be in a chemical form because it has to dissolve in water so all the same ureas and daps and all the fertilizers that were being used in chemical farming are now being dissolved in water and fed through this hydroponic systems hmm. uh they are being touted as more uh, uh more sustainable but i have seen plenty of hydroponic setups the amount of plastic they use the amount of energy they use the amount of water they waste is just i mean there was a farm right next to our farm here in vasant kunj which was growing uh, in a greenhouse hydroponically we ha- so they were that, that greenhouse was in 1000 square meters which is a quarter of an acre hmm. and we had 5 acres next to it the amount of water we used in 5 acres was less than what they used in 1000 square meters mm. so and and 90% of the water went waste because what they had to use to grow hydroponically was ro water they they started contaminating the whole land around them mm. which was lying where they were disposing of this water it used to always be flooded with this with this discarded water so so which which nobody on the consumer front or the media front will show you my point is that so somewhere it's being shown as this as this new magical solution that's going to handle our food security or food problems but it's actually not neither is it healthier for you so so having said this in some i i see benefits of technology but more in terms of uh connecting the urban farmer the, the farmer and the urban consumer in hmm. terms of in terms of bre- those benefits of technology where now we are able to come closer as people the logistical hmm. benefits we have nowadays with all these faster delivery systems etc so those those are all welcome hmm. and they they can further help us bring our food closer to us In all these years of running edible roots what is the biggest hurdle or challenge that you have faced One thing that I do find strange is influencing the mindset of people mm-hmm. uh this this whole idea of slowing down in terms of uh you know taking time to to understand your food and connect with food the the lifestyle we have in cities is sort of inherently doesn't allow that to happen. Hmm. So so I think that's been a challenge, you know, like people want fast solutions, people want everything every time very quickly. This is this is the way the hmm. modern life hmm. has been designed and and is is sort of growing. So one of the foundations that our farms are built upon is that you have to come and visit. You have to hmm. engage in the process, at least see what's growing on your on your farmlet and what have you chosen to grow at what stage it has grown. 
but people are not willing so so what we have also lately started doing is a lot of uh, farm food events so to say okay so so these are either pop-ups so we invite a chef who 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 curates a meal mm. around the seasonal things growing in the farm mm. and 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 offer it at a price to the person who wants to come and enjoy the experience of eating that food but also a lot of people are now coming to us to organize their birthday events or their corporate office gathering mm. or a family gathering mm. so this has been one way we have been able to increase engagement initially mm. we used to say oh come come and see what's growing on your farm hmm. come and plug that tomato so only the enthusiasts will come right now correct correct oh. so so that oh. that didn't attract enough people but the hmm. moment we have started offering this event scenario where you can come and eat food you can actually experience it all the way to consuming it hmm. that has attracted more people hmm. when they eat it it becomes real hmm. until it's growing and they're plucking it's still not real yeah, yeah. but once they eat it it's real You said that the farms are very much within NCA Delhi NCA. From what I see in the land use, farmlands have been pushed out completely from this master plan. Areas are either residential, commercial. What are the practical hurdles that you face to buy? The, do you a buy that land or rent that lot? And how do you convince someone that I'm going to do farming on this? Um, it's an uphill challenge. The most of the lands that we are able to work on as of now. is is because of some altruistic sense in the person who is giving it to us okay if if you if you look at it monetarily it doesn't make sense at all for them uh so the main challenge that we have faced around this is is uh, we have to constantly migrate uh we 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 are on one land for say one or two years and then the owner suddenly says that they want to sell the land for or build up something on it mm. so so that has been a challenge uh, we are finding ways to build more stability into this and we have been able to do some some improvements in the last few years but initially we had a huge challenge we we got on a new farm we spent 2 years we improved the soil we do everything and suddenly we were asked to leave and uh, legally like land use wise you never face the issue with the authorities of doing practicing farming there so the the issue only comes if you are doing uh, farming of cereals and pulses Okay. Growing growing vegetables and fruits comes under horticulture. So it's like a kitchen garden or hmm. a, or a backyard garden where you're allowed to grow fruits and veggies okay, for yourself. Okay. So so that th- that doesn't come under the legal domain of or the conflict of the hmm. legal domain. But if if we start farming for grains and pulses, then it could be because then we're not farmers technically and we're trying hmm. to compete with the farmers. Hmm. But that's not the case. The general understanding around businesses working in the sustainability sphere is that it's difficult to turn a profit we wanted to know whether this was the case for kapil and for edible roots i think it's a journey um to me see the financial viability was always was always a goal hmm. uh, not only for the organization itself but also to support my livelihood so so that that was always on the mind uh having said that the the question you are asking is has an inherent assumption that if i am doing something that's climate conscious or socially conscious can't be profitable hmm. and and that that assumption is what i want to challenge that hmm. you know why are we assuming that something that's good for the planet and good for the people can't be financially viable as well hmm. so it can be challenging because because a lot of the profitable industries out there are built upon certain subsidies or certain special privileges they get from government mm. that allows them to be profitable mm. uh, which which is not the case here mm. 
but at the same time i believe that if there's a need for something in the market and if it's designed properly in terms of a business model then then it could be turned into something that can generate profits a surplus for for the people who work at that organization and also for the person who who runs the organization how much has this whole journey impacted you as a person i think hugely i mean i'm i have definitely changed as a person i have grown especially as a person who to to be able to run an organization to be able to like i was mostly an introvert throughout my life but now i have i wouldn't say i've become an extrovert but now i have ability i have been able to talk to people because that's what the work requires mm-hmm. so so in various ways i have changed and mostly for the good uh my personal uh, health and lifestyle has improved especially because initially when when i started in my, in my early farming years i had to go and find what i want to eat in a mm. from a known local but now because of the work we do we are connected with all the farmers and some of it we grow most of it we grow ourselves but as a person also like i mean i feel that at least now i feel that i've i'm able to enjoy life more i have been able to slow down a bit personally uh enjoy my work really truly you know in terms mm. of what i'm doing on a day to day basis uh while money is still important the financial viability is still important for the organization and for its people but at the same time i and the team has grown so now i have that mind space and time to 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 explore into other areas of work or other areas of my interest and at the same time give more time to myself mm. what what's also i think at a very subtle level has happened is that I've been doing this almost for 15 years now the farming bit hmm. and uh, I have become more clearer about what I want and hmm. and what I want to run behind what gives me peace what doesn't and and not sort of follow the herd sort of not, not the herd mindset hmm. you know that we are supposed to scale for example hmm. or we are supposed to make x amount of money or have x amount of cars or whatever that hmm. might be hmm. because initially a lot of these investors and vcs would come to me let let's invest in your business we'll give you this amount of money but then i know the moment they invest i'm going to have to run, run behind their profit goals their revenue goals so so consciously choosing to say no that not now i'm not ready for this yet so mm. i think in in that sense that some wisdom has come of of what i truly want and uh, and so sort of living and enjoying life on a day to day basis What does the future look like for Edible Roots? What's your eventual goal? We are already growing in terms of geography. We are doing work in other cities, uh, although at a slow and steady pace. We are still primarily mostly in NCR. Um where we want to go now, see we have been able to do about 1500 rooftop gardens in Delhi NCR. We have three farms with a few hundred families involved in it. uh we have had thousands of people who have been to our workshops we have worked with schools and also in in if you see in that sense yes we have made an impact hmm. but but if i look at a level deeper i know that what i have done is only a drop still so so in that sense i'm very driven in terms of 
increasing the reach of what we are doing Incre- taking this to more people hmm. because because this is needed and especially in metros people have still gotten more and more aware but tier 2 tier 3 cities people are still not aware because the problems have not come to hmm. home yet hmm. so so how do we take this forward so one one sort of idea that's in a seed stage right now is is some some sort of a community or a network a self sustained network that's again from the permaculture idea that that uh that supports itself so 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 maybe a way to bring together all the people who want to live in 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 a healthy sustainable manner want to grow their own food hmm. across the country how can they come together on one platform hmm. uh and just as a peer peer group nothing to take or give so so that's that's one thing that's on my mind that's what i want to create who or what has been your inspiration for all of this what has kept you and edible roots going all of these years so i come from a a marwadi business family so somewhere uh, i always had this in me that you know and and i'm the i'm the youngest in my gen of of eight six and plus four 10 10 cousins hmm. i'm the youngest one so uh and everybody else is in the same business hmm. the family business so so somewhere i've always had this sort of thing that i want to prove myself that i can also hmm. run a business so 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 that's that's one thing i wouldn't say that there's one particular person but but there are a few areas that have helped me f- sort of figure out my path hmm. few people who have done that so in terms of uh starting a business in terms of taking risk in terms of growing a business richard branson has been a very uh, infl- i've read a lot of his books and his thought process in terms of how to start a business how to take risks what is what is the path that you follow mm. uh so that that that's been very helpful in terms of my farming knowledge itself there are a few handful of people uh one thing i realized and i had known this much before also that if i want to really quickly learn this farming skill i have to find a faster learning curve because most farmers have learned it over generations mm. so mm. to to me to get at their level i can i don't have five lifetimes so so one thing that i had done i remember is that after about a year of dabbling and losing a lot of money in this farming thing in gujarat i found the best farmer in my village hmm. so about 2 kilometers away from where my farm was i found him uh, he also was a very sort of a uh, innovative type of farmer trying to trying to do new things so he was also attracted to what i was doing on my farm i got drip irrigation into that village for the first time hmm. water is always a scarcity over there so so all these things he was also attracted to so he also liked being with me but but i had a very subtle and ulterior motive at all times to learn farming very quickly hmm. for 2 years straight every day i used to spend 3 hours with him walking his fields having food with him talking to him he didn't know that i'm hmm. that i have this intention hmm. uh, he enjoyed my company but at the same time i knew that this is the fastest way to learn because i had to get into his mind when he is walking the field how is he looking at the plant how is he looking at the soil what is he looking at at the sky hmm. what are what are his observations that's the learning that takes generally generations to learn uh, in addition to that over in a, on a larger scale there are two three known farmers uh, both of them have passed away now um, one person called narayan reddy 
he's a farmer based out of Karnataka. So I used to, at that time when I started farming, I used to read this magazine called Lisa, Low External Input Sustainable Agriculture. Hmm. And there used to be a small column by him at the end. I used to skip the whole magazine. I, I just used to love reading what he does. And I really, really aligned with his mindset of how farming is meant to be. And then there's another person called Bhaskar Sabe. I met, I, I met both of them just once in my hmm. life, but I mostly read their work. Um, so visiting their farms and, and understanding their mindset, their philosophy. That's where a lot of this, what I'm talking about hmm. today comes from. Hmm. And then, of course, my family and parents. You know, we, I come from a, a family who runs a business. So the, the ethical mindset to have. Hmm. And, and lastly, I want to appreciate this whole science of permaculture. Hmm. One, because permaculture is based on how nature designs how nature creates, how can nature run a forest for a thousand years mm. and it gets better and better every year. Mm. There must be something it's doing, there must be something it's thinking. One of my drives has been to learn from this science of permaculture, from nature, how to design things. Mm -hmm. So why can't we design an organization around it? And, the, and if you look at a forest, who is running a forest? Who is that yeah. one person? So I don't yeah. want it to be a one person thing. Yeah. I want it to be something that becomes like an ecosystem, like a web. That is self-sustaining. There is a lot of redundancy built into it, a lot of resilience built into it, a lot of diversity built into it. This is these are the principles of nature. These are the principles. Mm. So how can we do that same thing with an with an organization? organization. How mm. can we do that same thing with our cities? How mm. can we do the same thing with our homes? You know, how can we design them where they are not a drain on our finances, they're not a drain on the planet? How can they become something that they contribute? Like a tree. A tree is a perfect example. Mm. It it takes so little and it it's always giving throughout its mm. life. And, it, and it's still thriving. Yeah. We hope that Edible Roots 2 continues to thrive and furthers their goal of helping people eat better. Inching Closer is a podcast supported by the Ethos Grants Program. Reach out to us on our website www.inchingcloser.org or on Instagram where our handle is inchingcloser.podcast This episode was written and produced by Anant Mittal and Anirudh Sharan. The episode was mixed by Dhruv Dhingra and Anant Mittal with original music also written by Dhruv Dhingra and Anant Mittal. See you next time. Until then, let's keep inching closer.